On the Tuesday before Thanksgiving in 2012, my wife and I loaded up our, we'll call it mostly functional, 1998 Isuzu Trooper in Marshfield, Missouri, and started a drive down to Tucson, Arizona. I had just accepted a new job down there as a pastor of youth and outreach, and we were getting ready to head down there. Now, we didn't know exactly what we were getting into because our moving truck wasn't going to be getting there until the day after Thanksgiving. So we loaded it up with the things that we thought would be most mission critical for the first couple of days. We had our two dogs, a handful of microwave meals and a microwave, an air mattress, our big screen TV, and our Xbox. And we figured that as long as we had those things, we could at least keep ourselves entertained. We didn't know, like I said, what was exactly going on. I'd never lived in another state. Morgan and I had never moved before. But the one thing that we did know for sure was that on Thanksgiving, there was a family from the church who had invited us over to come over for Thanksgiving. They were called the Masons. And uh, we knew that we were going to go over to their house because... Really, anything beats microwavable noodle bowls on Thanksgiving. (laughs) What we didn't know was that for the Masons, Thanksgiving wasn't a meal as much as it was an event. (laughs) This was one of those families that there were them, the five of them, the two random of us from Missouri, people from all over the state who were part of their family, and then 40 other people that included people that they had worked with like eight years before and who always just came back for Thanksgiving. And I'm pretty sure there was a kid who they saw at Casey's the night before that just didn't have a place to go. (laughs) It was wild, it was amazing, and it was perfect, actually. It was this beautiful space of stability in a world that seemed like a lot of chaos. And you know, I, I think that there's a lot of times that, that we look back at that and we think that that's really important. In fact, even when we moved to Morocco, my wife and I, we made sure to FaceTime the Masons on Thanksgiving because we needed that space of stability. You know, I find it kind of weird and kind of perfect, too, that whenever we find ourselves in those chaotic spaces, part of us wants to just throw everything away and start anew. And then there's a part of us that just yearns for something that has comfort all over it. Maybe it's a comfort meal. Maybe it's that place that you and your partner walk down to and there's that boulder that you sit on and you look over the lake. Or or maybe it's just like episode two of season three of The Office. (laughs) And you know no matter what, if you just turn on that episode, you know you're always going to get a good laugh. Today we're going to be continuing our series here called Let's eat. And we're going to be talking about comfort food and tradition and about how the bonds that food creates and sustains in us really makes a huge difference to us. It's that space where like the normal and mundane shows us the divine. And I hope that by looking at what is honestly a pretty weird story in the Christian Bible, that we'll be able to see how this is a place where you can help find your people here at the venues, that when all else is weird, that it can provide that space of hope and healing. But before we do that, I do want to take just a second and ask you a very important question. What are your comfort foods? 
I'll start, and then I'm going to actually have you yell them out. I'm going to write them up here on the board. We'll leave it up here because we'll come back to it later. But I'll start by telling you that my comfort food is mac and cheese. And when I was teaching at Kickapoo, I ate mac and cheese for lunch every single day. <laughs> because as a high school teacher, things can get pretty chaotic, yes? <laughs> and having that space of stability every day that I could come back to gave me a lot of comfort. So who else has a comfort food in here? Someone just shout it out for me. Chicken Alfredo. You would pick the hardest words to spell. <laughs> I think that's it. Okay, excellent. Somebody else. Nuggets. <laughs> okay, nuggets. Ramen. Crab, ragoon. Potatoes. And really, potatoes are good because it doesn't even matter what form they're in, right? Like... <laughs> Uh, we'll, we'll leave it at that. And uh, you can make fun of the ways I write G's later. But the reality is that we all have comfort foods. And I knew before I even asked that question, because comfort foods are something that are universal, aren't they? It doesn't matter if you're from India or Indiana. You have comfort foods. They'll be different. But we all have that shared experience. And the truth is, not only are comfort foods universal, but recent science is starting to tell us that they're actually evolutionary. A recent study by Dr. Kenny Ip, who's a researcher at Garvin Institute in Sydney, looked at the way that mice interacted with sweetened foods when they were under a lot of stress, and then how they interacted with sweetened foods when they were under less stress. And they found that mice ate a lot more sweetened foods when they were under a lot of stress. Uh, Medical News Today reported it this way. They said, Dr. Ip said that animals living in the wild lack the privilege of overindulging in high-fat food sources and that their stress systems allow them to survive by fine-tuning their energy use and supply depending on current demands. High-fat foods provide a way to gain energy quickly. And, as Dr. Ip put it, having more energy in the body is certainly better in the wild than having less energy. You see, there's this thing that when life gets crazy, we want comfort. It's normal. It's part of who we are. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a story that's in the Christian Bible. It's in the book of Luke, and it is a pretty wild and chaotic story. There's some parts that it's like, why was this even written? But I hope that as we do that, and then as we end today's service with something that we call communion, that will actually engage in that space of finding comfort, of finding our place, and through doing that, that we will find our people. It starts in Luke 24, verse 13, and it says it this way. That same day, two of Jesus' followers were going to a town named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking about everything that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and began walking with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. Then he said, what are these things you're talking about while you walk? Now, just to give you a little bit of background, because it starts off by saying that same day, which we know that when you see that, you should ask what's going on, like what's creating the background story here. What's happening here is it is right after the period where Jesus dies and is buried. And then on the day that we celebrate as Easter, we celebrate the fact that the grave was empty. Okay, the women had gone to the grave, had realized it was empty, and had come back to tell the followers, who likely included these folks, and that's kind of what caused them then to start walking away. Now, one of the things 
that I think is really important when we read stories in the Bible is it is helpful to find places where we can put ourselves into the story. Now, if you're a white cis straight dude like me, it's very easy to find a place where you fit into the story. But this story, if you grew up like I did, where you maybe saw a painting of the road to Emmaus, or maybe you had like felt bored Jesus in your Sunday school class, right? This story would have almost always been told with two males walking down the road together. But recent scholarship has actually indicated that might not have been the case at all. That it was probably either a man and a woman who were married, or it might have been a gay couple of two men. And the reason was that at that time, because of economic realities, having two adult men living together would have been very frowned upon economically just outside of Jerusalem. So when you read this story, one of the things that I think is really important and insightful to note is that we don't know much about them. All we know is that one of their names was Cleopas and that they were going to their house together. And I think it's important to see that that's exactly where Jesus shows up. It says that these two were walking around and discussing things. They were talking about things. And I do want to point out that in Luke, when they're talking about things, they use a very specific word. It's actually the only time in the Bible that this word is used to mean talking about. It's this word. It's the word antibaleti. And it's the word that we actually get our English word anti-ballistic from. What that probably means is that this conversation wasn't just casually nice talking about the weather. Rather, it was probably a pretty heated discussion of talking back and forth. In fact, you might have said they were debating or even arguing about what was going on. Now, there's honestly no way of knowing what they were debating. In fact, there's no way of even knowing if this story literally took place this way because there's only the two of them, and it might have been something that Luke added later because it's the only place that it shows up in the Bible. But some scholars suggest that what they were talking about was the fact that there had been a lot of frustration that had been built up that had been going on with the way that the Roman government had killed Jesus, and it had killed what they thought were going to be their dreams. You see, one of the things it does say is that they thought that Jesus had come back to redeem Israel. They thought that Jesus was going to set up some kind of a political kingdom around. And so what happened here is as they're walking, they start talking about the fact that the Roman government then killed Jesus and so all of their hopes of things changing, of those who had historically been oppressed, getting to positions of power, of those who had been in power, changing places, of those who were not considered to be fully human, being made fully human, etc. Suddenly, all of that had just been quashed. And I can kind of imagine these two folks throw up their hands and just say, is it even worth fighting for anymore? This was our best hope. How often is it that we do the same thing, right? We feel like things are starting to move the right direction. People are having more flourishing. People are doing better things. We start to see more people engaging in better spaces. And then suddenly it's as if one big decision or one big decree or one election or one whatever just wipes all of that out. And it can feel very easy in that space just to want to throw up our hands and just be like, is it even worth fighting for anymore? We start arguing not only with those who are the oppressors, but we start even arguing with those 
who we've been walking side by side with? Is it time to just cash in our chips and try a completely new system? Just throw in the towel. I want you to know, by the way, that if that's where you are today, that's okay. That's okay. This journey starts with them in that space where they are so frustrated and so exasperated by the system around them that has said things are not working the way it should be, that they just want to throw up their hand. And that is exactly where Jesus shows up. You know, we are confronted often with something that is new and suddenly shakes us up, and it makes us want to push back against those whom we love. A recent study by UC Irvine indicated that the majority of us face the situation, actually. They suggested that 98% of adults in the United States struggle with something that they call persuasion fatigue. This is the piece that, especially in the world of COVID and everything being either red or blue or red or blue, that we get so frustrated with the arguments that are having to happen all the time that we just throw up our hands and we break the relationships on every side away from us because we are so tired of it. And so when that is happening, I want you to know that Jesus sees you there, even if you don't see Jesus. This is one of the weirdest parts of the story, by the way, to me, and there's a lot. Because it says that in this story, as these two folks are walking down throwing their hands up, that Jesus steps in and asks them what's going on, but they are kept from recognizing him. I'll be honest, I have no idea what that means. No one else does either. Nobody knows why that happened or even what it means. But one thing that I think is possible is that I think maybe it's possible that Luke is trying to tell the readers this, that without the relationship piece, all the facts in the world don't matter. Let me say that again, okay? That's really important. Without the relationship piece, all the facts in the world don't matter. For the next chunk of verses, it shares that these two individuals were talking back and forth about how they had been there and how Jesus had died. And they had talked about how the women had gone and seen the empty tomb and how they'd come back and talked to the followers, but the followers didn't believe the women. Then Jesus goes on to do what has often been called the greatest Sunday school lesson of all time, <laughs> where he tells them all of the things from the Old Testament that pointed to Jesus. In fact, in verse 27, it finishes by saying this, that in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, meaning Jesus, explained to them what was said in all the scripture concerning himself. Now, I'm not going to say that Jesus did the wrong thing here, clearly. I'm just saying that I don't know anyone of us who is sufficient of a teacher or sufficient of an explainer that when people were walking around really bummed out that my first piece of advice would be tell them all of the stories from the Old Testament, okay? And that's not to say that there's not good things there. There are, but I just don't know that that would have been my starting point. But maybe, and maybe I could be wrong here, there's a chance that what Luke is trying to get at is to help people understand that just dumping all the knowledge and all the theology on people who are going through chaos isn't the best place to start. My guess is that many of us have experienced this, 
we have been in a place where maybe we're trying to untangle our faith or we're trying to untangle the things that we've grown up with. We're trying to figure out what Jesus looks like or what God looks like or what the church looks like or Christianity or the Bible, how those things relate to the queer community, how those things relate to the government, how those things relate to COVID, how those things relate to Israel, Palestine. We're trying to untangle all of this stuff. And suddenly, someone slips into our DMs or sends us a private message on Facebook, and they say, here is a slew of Bible verses. You've really been on my heart. Please hear this. There is nothing wrong with sharing Bible verses or with you telling someone that you've been thinking about them. That's spectacular. But please know that just like the disciples in the story, I wonder how often those things have been shared without the relationship piece first, which causes the reaction to be a fracture of the relationship. How many people do you know that have literally left friendships over that kind of a reaction? I'm not ready to hear this. Because remember that all of the information in the world is irrelevant without the relationship piece first. So if you feel the need to be like Jesus by sharing Bible verses, please read the rest of the story here first. Okay? Because that's what shows up, is that after that happened, after Jesus had been telling all of these things, the Bible says, starting in verse 28, that as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Like I said earlier, this is a really weird story. These folks are walking down the street. They start to head to their house. Jesus like fakes them out and is like, nope, I'm gonna keep on walking. They say, no, 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 come on in. We'll be your host and you can be the guest at our house. And then suddenly the script on the story flips and Jesus goes from being the guest at the house to being the one who's breaking the bread, which is basically the host job. And then as he does that, they realize who he is and he disappears. There's no wonder that people look at stories in the Bible and they're like, does this even make any sense? Why would I do this? <laughs> right, <laughs> right. It's, it's bizarre. It seems unbelievable at times. And I think that may be exactly what Luke is trying to communicate here. There's two quick things I want you to get out of this. The first is this. The relationship recontextualizes the information. Let me say that again. The relationship recontextualizes the information. As I was preparing for this talk, I was reading a bunch of scholarly articles that were talking about the presumed author of this text, Luke, and his relationship to the Roman government, known as the empire. These texts would often have titles like Luke and the empire. Luke and the empire. Luke and the Empire. And I wondered where I'd ever heard that before. <laughs> On May 21st, 1980, a mere six months after I was born, Lucasfilms would release The Empire Strikes Back, and while I wasn't in line to see it, because <laughs> I was only six months old, much of my early childhood 
was spent with lightsabers, <laughs> with the snow walking at-ats, and never having to worry that if we were ever in a battle with my friends that they would hurt me because they were all dressed up like stormtroopers. And we all know they can't hit anything. <laughs> but it was like I had a relationship with this movie. I had, I had all the toys, not just the Death Star, but I had the obscure ones. I had the VHS tapes. <laughs> it was like I was fully intimately acquainted with what was going on. I was all in on it. And then in 1999, right after I had graduated from high school and had some of my own money, the prequel to the original trilogy came out. I stood in line in Springfield to see the midnight showing. I dressed up a little bit. I was there with a bunch of my friends. I was that guy. <laughs> yeah, I was. I, some of you may have been that guy too, or that gal, or that person. <laughs> Standing there in line. And I remember watching episode one, which by all objective measures was absolutely terrible. <laughs> they introduced a bunch of new characters like Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> the tone wasn't the same. The, the setting didn't seem to make sense. And I completely loved it. <laughs> There, there were the things that would foreshadow things in the future. There were the little Easter eggs that would show up and the whole theater would stand up and clap because we knew where the payoff would be down the line. You know, I think sometimes our faith plays out that same way too, by the way. There are these stories in the Bible and maybe they've been used to hurt us. Maybe they've been used in ways that we don't understand to exclude us. And sometimes they were just downright confusing. But this story says that once their eyes had been opened, once they were in a relationship with Jesus in some capacity, that they remembered all the stuff that they had heard from Jesus earlier. In other words, the prequel made sense. They saw the clues. Let me say this for me. And this may not be the way it is for you. This may not be your experience, but this is how it is for me. That when I more fully understand my relationship with God. That God is for me, that God loves me, that God is with me. And by the way, God loves, is for you, and is with you as well. When I remember that God sees me as good, sometimes I find a different joy in the Bible in those instances. Sometimes I see it not because I terribly care if the stories there are literally true or not, but because the tradition and the narrative that it builds helps me understand the divine. It reminds me that the people who wrote these stories down were doing the same thing that I'm trying to do. They were trying to figure out what it's like to live their one and only life on this planet while they're engaging with the divine, engaging with God, engaging with love, engaging with Jesus, trying to figure that out. It helps me see how people interacted with Jesus and how that relationship changed everything for them. The second thing that I want you to see is this. The material recontextualizes the divine. The material recontextualizes the divine. Did you notice the specific thing that Jesus did that caused these individuals to have their eyes opened? It said this, when he was at the table with them, he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. You see, it wasn't the lovely teaching that he did. 
It wasn't the fact that he was like walking with them or joined them at their house. It was when he broke bread with them. You know, one of the number one questions that we get asked here at the venues is why we still do things like communion or baptism. Haven't those things been used in the past to hurt people? Haven't those things been done in the past to exclude people, to tell people that they are not welcome at the table? It has been. And for that, I'm deeply, deeply sorry. I know there are people, probably people in this room or who are watching this online, who have been told that the table is not big enough for you. And to that, let me just say, you were lied to. The table is big enough for all of us. You are welcome here. You belong here. You are enough, just like you are. Things like communion and baptism are not necessary for you to be loved and affirmed. By the way, neither is coming to church or listening to a talk. They are just reminders. And sometimes I need to be reminded of that. One thing that I have found that helps sometimes for me is if I get confused, I just put my hand on my heart just like this. And I feel my heartbeat, and it reminds me that my body is doing everything it can to keep me alive. Everything it can. My body is doing its absolute best. And sometimes I think that we need that reminder as well, that, that we are doing our absolute best to try to figure out what this looks like, what this relationship with God thing looks like. And sometimes we just need to be reminded, you're enough. You are affirmed. The table is big enough, and that's what... It does. The other part of the reason I think that we need to do this, though, is because of tradition. And when I was younger, I was like, just throw away tradition. It's stupid. But let me say this. I think sometimes that part of what helps us understand God is understanding that God is not just some ethereal being out there, but rather that God shows up in the divine, in the material, that the divine shows up in the material. In the Garden of Eden, wisdom and knowledge and work and temptation are all surrounding the question of food. Leviticus and the holiness codes are largely about food. The Passover, which Jesus was celebrating the night of the Last Supper, was largely a question about food preparation. Jesus fed thousands and thousands of people. His first miracle was about food and wine. He used it as a symbol of his love when at the Last Supper he broke bread and passed out wine. And at the end of the Christian scripture in the book of Revelation, it's used as an example of when oppression ceases at a great banquet. Sometimes we need those tangible reminders, don't we? And I think that's part of why the Bible helps me understand God's love as well. It's something that I can put my fingers around. It's something that I can think about. It's the same reason that comfort food helps us understand God as well. It helps us understand the love of our family, the way that love is expressed, and that's part of what communion does as well. So here in just a minute, we're going to do this Christian tradition called communion. Professor of psychology Paul Rosen and some of the colleagues of his from Columbia University did a study about this, and here's what they said. The simple transfer of food resembles a lot more than you may think. The sharing or feeding of food is a small but monumental sign of the intimacy of your relationship. When we choose to share food together, when we choose to break bread together, we choose to share in this very material act. It says and does something much larger than just the eating of food and the drinking of wine together. It communicates that you are seen. The same way that in 2012, the Mason said, Chris and Morgan, you are seen. 
The same way that when your friend makes crab ragoon, you are seen and you are loved. So here in a minute, when you come up, if you're comfortable with doing so, what you will hear is this. If you come to one of the tables, there's five. There's one up in front of me, two on the side, and two up in the balcony. What you will hear is as you pick up the elements, you will hear the person who is there say, the Christ in me sees the Christ in you. And if you are comfortable, you are welcome to say that back to them, but you don't have to. Because the truth is, you are affirmed regardless of your response. The Christ in me sees the Christ in you. Because the story is that when Jesus passed out the bread and wine to his disciples, even in the story that we just read today, he didn't make sure that they understood every particular piece of it. He said the relationship matters the most. The belonging piece matters the most. We can figure out the theology, the believing piece later, but belonging was more important. And so we do the same today as a reminder that the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and gave it to his followers to eat. And then he did the same thing with the wine. When he took and drank it and passed it around. He did it as a reminder of the love that they had. So what I'm going to ask is I'm going to ask those who are helping with communion today to come on up to the table. I'm going to go ahead and pray here in a second, and then I'll have Joey come up and David come up and play some music in the background while we partake. The basics are this. At each table, there is non-alcoholic grape juice, there is wine, and all of the bread is gluten-free because we want to be in an open space where no one feels excluded. What we'd ask is that you come forward, if you wish, take, pick it up, and then head back to your seat to partake in it. And then after everyone has had a chance to partake, I will close us out in prayer. But let me pray, and then we uh, finish up with communion. God, may we be people who see you in everyone, and may we demonstrate that love to each other the same way you did with us, by breaking bread, by being welcomed at the table. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. My hope for you today is this. My hope that you will know that you're enough. My hope that you will know that you are seen. My hope will be that you know that you are affirmed and that the table is big enough for all of us, that it's at this table where we find our people. You have not partaken yet. You are free to partake and to know you're welcomed at this table always.